Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. the end of May Musical Month prom party. Be cool. Be cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's very funny to me that like the first thing I knew about West Side Story in any capacity in my lifetime is Mm -hmm. and it's quite hilarious how much this isn't really in this show at all. Yeah, it's really not. There's a little bit of snapping, but not a lot of snap choreo in, in this new version of West Side Story because to end May Musical Month, We are watching West Side Story, but we are watching Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Yes, we are. Uh, This is the version of West Side Story that I have seen. I did show (laughs) Harmony quite a a good number of clips from the original. I mean, I've seen clips of the original Mm -hmm. where they are all just taking place in utter darkness. There's a lot of stuff on like like black box stage sort of settings Uh for sure. Um, But the reason that we have decided to talk about this version of West Side Story and not the original film is, one, um, brown face. Like, let's just pull that band-aid off. Oh, yeah. That that is one of those those old Hollywood icks that I knew about long before I knew anything about West Side Story where it's like, hey, that's just a thing that's in this movie. Um, We also don't talk about, like, that part of Breakfast at Tiffany's with Mickey Rooney. Uh Like, just, it's a thing, just like... It, it's it's a thing you're aware of. Yeah, and like important clarification. It's not that we do not have these conversations. It's that there's sort of just this general understanding everybody has of like, yeah, this is a really bad thing that yeah. exists in this movie. It's gross. And then they move past it. So we didn't want to get kind of hung up on a lot of those sorts of issues because there are <laughs> plenty of other issues to talk about. Yeah, we have to deal with Ansel Elgort. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get there. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, also, this is the most recent version, which I think the changes that Spielberg made are really interesting, but there's things to talk about in terms of what he changed and whether or not that works. Um, but really the main reason that we wanted to do this version and not the original is that the original version also deals with a lot of ghost singing, um, meaning that the people who were singing were not actually singing. Natalie Wood was not singing in that role. And this is May Musical Month and we want to talk about it as a musical and the people that were cast because of their musical talent and their dancing talent because that matters. Um, Ayanna DeBose. She's so incredible. Oh. People really need to stop being so mean to her about the BAFTAs because she's incredible. This Schmigadoon, Hamilton, what she's fucking trying so hard in the prom, but that is just doing nothing for her. God. And we'll talk about, you know, we'll talk about that as well and talent yeah. and 
this one just seemed like the more relevant film to talk about. And, you know, maybe someday we'll go back to the original, but I also don't really see the point when everyone has kind of already made up their minds about that film and we know the problems that it has and we know the things that it does well. Um, and it can just kind of stay in the past. We have more, we have a more current version to discuss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's really fun about doing... West Side Story is that this is arguably like the meatiest discussion in terms of everything going on that we've probably ever had on the show. Yeah, because this is, this is a pretty deep one. And for the record, we did try to get um, a number of people to be guests for this episode. Um, just schedules have changed. The writer strike has also changed a lot of people's availability. So there is going to be a lot of references to other reading because Again, we're talking about race relations. We are both white. It should not be our opinions on these things. Uh -huh. um, so understand that, like, we we tried. Uh, if people aren't available, people aren't available. And it's, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. So, Harmony, you briefly mentioned, like, kind of knowing West Side Story without seeing it. So other than the snapping and the brown face of the original, like, what did you know about West Side Story? Um, I mean, in terms of cultural permeation west side story is probably one of the most well-known musicals like it, you know what west side story kind of is even if you don't know what west side story is because mm -hmm. it's up there with like singing in the rain and the sound of music is just like this big untouchable milestone of of classic movie musicals mm -hmm. so like i was aware of it i know the songs granted i learned about them in weird places um, like the version of Somewhere That I Know is performed by Tom Waits. <laughs> the yeah. version of uh, the opening Jets number that I know is from Alice Cooper. Mm -hmm. um, I first heard I Feel Pretty in Anger Management with <laughs> Adam Sandler. So like the fact that we're coming from a lot of different places probably speaks to the very specific cultural saturation that West Side Story has. So um, no, it was around. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know too, too much about it, but when the new one came down, I was like, oh, I want to watch that. Cause one, I like the spectacle of a musical. Um, I also just love Steven Spielberg just doing whatever he feels like doing. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, let's rock it. So you, on the other hand, mm -hmm. obviously have a degree in musical mm -hmm. theater. Mm -hmm. You know a lot more about this than me. <laughs> Put that degree to use. How, how did how did you know about what what is your introduction to West Side Story? I'm sure yours is much less silly than mine. I mean, it's pretty standard. I watched it really young because it's a movie musical, and that appealed to me always. It's also passed down by families because this isn't a teen girl movie. This is just cinema. Yes, this is just cinema. This is just something everybody loves. Um, my grandma and I watched it together because my grandma loves a movie musical. Um, I saw a stage production of it when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. One of our like neighboring schools was doing it. And I remember all of us being like, a high school doing West Side Story? That's going to be a train wreck. That's going to be so bad. They're not going to have the right people for it. They're not going to have the, the choreography for it. And we were right. Mm -hmm. uh, we went and saw it and we noticed quite immediately, oh, everyone in this is white. Like every single person in this cast is white. Uh, they that happens a lot in high schools. Huh? Oh, it sure does. Uh, and they tried to differentiate between the Sharks and the Jets just with costuming, Jets being in blue 
blue, sharks being in red. That's pretty traditional when people do productions. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, hearing a bunch of white kids singing America is like one of the worst experiences I've ever had. That Uh, sure sounds like a show they shouldn't be doing. uh, Yeah, it's like when schools uh, don't have enough black people and they decide they're going to do hairspray. Or they do, can they do Hamilton yet? Is that allowed? Is that a thing that white suburban kids? Okay, good. I'm glad that white kids in the suburbs are not allowed to do Hamilton. (laughs) Yeah, that the rights are not up for that, but they will be one day and we're going to have a lot of... uh, Interesting casting choices in yeah. community theaters across the country. Yeah. Um, but West Side Story is got some of my favorite music in the the musical theater canon. I mean, it is Sondheim. It, this is kind of Sondheim's big break. This he, is his breakout role that he had when he was 27, right? <laughs> no, this is not, actually. Oh, that's um, not. This is not the musical that Jonathan Larson was alluding to? No. Oh, uh, Sondheim worked on this, but this was not like, this is not his baby. Okay. Um, which I think is very telling. Um, Sondheim has actually spoken pretty uh, vocally um, in recent years about how he he didn't even really want to work on West Side Story. Uh, Jerome Robbins and Leonard Bernstein, uh, this is kind of like, this is their baby. And Leonard Sondheim... Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sondheim did the lyrics. Um, Arthur uh, Lorenz did, the, did the, the book for this. But Sondheim was like, I've never been poor or... Puerto Rican. So why do you want me to write the lyrics to this? But you know, he he did it. He did the work, and it ended up exploding in popularity, and people really loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a very complicated relationship with West Side Story because I love West Side Story, but this is one of those things where it's like you gotta love it critically. Mm-hmm. And I will say that Steven Spielberg gave me an opportunity to love this in a new way. I still think that some of the problems West Side Story has are embedded in the script. Uh But for me, West Side Story also follows under a similar umbrella as like the Karate Kid, where I can recognize the groundbreaking masterpiece that it is and what it changed and that the issues that are within it due to its like diverse representation are very fucking complicated Uh and also not my place to be uh, making definitive statements about. Sure. But considering that this is both a period piece and also a remake of a movie that was made uh, a pretty long time ago at this point, um, I'm going to throw it over to you for some context of when Spielberg's West Side Story is kind of coming into the fold. So uh, fortunately, I looked up when we were sitting down to this, uh, how much money this movie made. Mm -hmm. Because... I had a number in my head when this came out in late 2021 where someone said, like, opening weekend, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story made, like, $8 million. And I was like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. That's so bad. So I was thinking, like, wow, this probably cost, like, $150 million and it probably finished with, like, $40 million profit. That is a huge bomb. It's not quite that bad. It cost $100 million and it made, like, 70 back. And then Disney put it on Disney+. Plus. Now, we watched it on HBO Max, which by the time this comes out, it will be very close to just being called Max. It'll be Max at this point, yeah, because uh, I'm getting the worst birthday present imaginable from David Zaslav. Fucking worst. But something that I thought was interesting when we started watching it was that uh, there's a warning right after the 20th Century Studios thing that says, like, contains tobacco use or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. But didn't mention a warning for literally anything else, including the racism and the murder and the attempted rape. Right. So it was like, it's a really weird disclaimer to include. Yeah. Just on its own in this story. But 
that's kind of the world we're looking at. Uh, 2021 was not a kind year to anything that wasn't Spider-Man. Yeah. Fiscally. So something that I do want to just touch on a little bit, because we did this with Reefer Madness last week, where that was also a movie version of a movie from a million years ago. Mm-hmm. Not quite as old in this case. However, what is worth talking about with West Side Story is that this is so old that it is not a teen movie. It is cinema. It is so old that the teen genre doesn't really exist yet. Mm-hmm. So aside from this just being a landmark piece of cinema that won 10 Academy Awards, the second most in history behind a three-way tie amongst mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, Ben-Hur, and Titanic. And Titanic. So, like, the only real contemporaries you have for something like this are, like, Gidget, which is an isolated incident. Mm -hmm. Like, you have the Gidget movies that have not started the beach movie craze, which is, like, the start of teen cinema as we start to understand it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen until a little bit later in the 60s. But at this point, it's not a trend. It's just a series. Mm -hmm. And something called Rebel Without a Cause. Yep. Which is also... Very definitively a coming-of-age story Mm -hmm. that is so big and acclaimed and old enough that it is just cinema. Mm -hmm. So I think this is why this is a bit of a weird choice for us to cover either version of this, because it is so much larger than a coming-of-age story, even though it is just Romeo and Juliet. I think also because the original version... Everybody that's in it is really old. It's like yeah. the Grease sort of conundrum of everybody that's acting is beyond their years. Yeah. So it then gives you this feeling where like it doesn't feel like a teen story because the actors are not teens. Whereas in this, they are decidedly much younger. Um, and it's noticeable. Like there is a 10-year age difference between Ariana DeBose and Rachel Zegler. Mm-hmm. And because of that age difference, that dynamic between Anita and Maria changes completely because... Anita's older. She's been around the block. She Mm -hmm. knows more than Maria. Mm -hmm. And Maria's being naive because she's really young. I think with the original everyone seeming older than in this version, that sort of paints a a, a picture of this story that does it a disservice. Where this movie very clearly says, like, these are some punk-ass kids who are Mm -hmm. kids. They are kids. This movie makes it unmistakable that they are kids. They are are latchkey little shitheads who Mm -hmm. are just in a gang because they're trying to get by because Officer Krupke, my mom's a drunk who smokes weed and I'm a lonely little kid just trying to make my way in the world, Officer Krupke. Mm -hmm. Like, that's mostly bullshit, but like, you know what I'm saying though. Right. And, you know, they've got all the the misdirected anger in the world that Mm -hmm. you have when you're young and stupid. And you're also given poor focus because your shitty parents have trickled down racism on top of you. Yeah, and you're living in poverty, which means you're in survival mode, which means that you lash out and you can't see the forest for the trees. Like, there's a whole lot to unpack in this story. So frequently on the show, we talk about like two kind of recurring stories. We, we, do, we do a version of a Cinderella pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. And even more than that, we do a version of Romeo and Juliet all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Because it is the romantic story of all time. Correct. But what's different about this versus Romeo and Juliet, and it's something that we'd like to bring up, is that the Montagues and the Capulets are just rich, petty assholes. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's a feuding family for no reason other than we're mad at each other and it's exceedingly pointless, which is why it's a sad story. Mm-hmm. That's not the case here. And if you were to go ahead and actually find the Montagues and the Capulets of this, they're like the, the, the Knight of the Juggler people who are actually auctioning off the neighborhood. 
Mm-hmm. Those are the rich people, and this is all the shit that's rolling down onto the sharks and the jets. Yeah, so something that a lot of these Romeo and Juliet uh, adaptations kind of fuck up, and that includes West Side Story, is that they take this idea of star-crossed lovers, and they're like, oh, well, we got to put them from, you know, total opposite sort of situations. And the Montagues and Capulets were not opposites. That's why it they're was... remarkably similar. They're remarkably similar. It's like... Two, it's like- Two Pet- houses, similar it's in like, petty neighboring infighting in like Beverly Hills, essentially. <laughs> right, like it, it, it really is weird how we have turned Romeo and Juliet stories to then be like, oh, you're from completely the opposite wrong side worlds, of the tracks. right? And that's not the story here because that changes the power dynamic between mm-hmm. the sharks and the jets. And sure, the argument can be made of like, oh, well, they're all in poverty fighting against each other, but. The Jets have an advantage here in that they're white. They're also like the aggressors that we see in the opening of this movie. Yeah. Who are like <laughs> fucking up their graffiti, like mm-hmm. their, their wall monuments of their heritage. They're go- the ones screwing with it. Uh, so something that I actually find very fascinating to think about here is that a huge problem with West Side Story in general is that it, uh, it favors a white perspective. We totally. spend significantly more time through the perspective of Tony and the Jets than the Sharks. Like, the Jets get more songs to kind of explain their sides of things. Mm -hmm. But the reality of it is, this is obviously a stage show, but by the time the movie comes around, we are still in Hayes Code America. Mm -hmm. These are fairly complicated characters for Mm -hmm. Code-era stories. Mm -hmm. There's not a a wholly good guy versus bad guy in this story. If anything, the Jets are actually the bad guys. Mm Mm-hmm. And yet they're our main characters. Mm-hmm. So that is a very interesting story to be telling here. But the problem is, and Spielberg sort of remedies it. He updates a lot of things that I think helps. But because this is a Romeo and Juliet story, but it's trying to talk about race relations then as well as things now. Because Spielberg was like, oh, well, I, I specifically want to do this because I've always wanted to. But also... The way that there's been an increasing divide in this country, I think it's time to do this now more than ever. That's just too much heavy shit that is way outside the weight class of a Romeo and Juliet story. Yes. Like, it is punching (laughs) way... Like, its arms are not long enough to box with God. No. Uh, You're... You're absolutely right. And let's let's look at our plot synopsis of, like, how this story is pitched to people, and then we will start really ripping this to pieces, not in like a bad way, but just like dissecting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An adaptation of the 1957 musical, West Side Story explores forbidden love and the rivalry between the Jets and the Sharks, two teenage street gangs of different ethnic backgrounds. That's it. That's a very short way of describing this. That that more or less is the extent of the plot to the Beat It video. Mm-hmm. Like, that's about how deep you get with that synopsis. Yeah. But also, it's like, it's West Side Story. You probably know what it's mostly about, right? I would hope so, because at this point, if even if people who haven't seen West Side Story, I think, have some passing knowledge, because like you mentioned earlier, it's permeated culture in a way that it's sort of omnipresent. It's just one of those things that I feel like, even if you don't know what it is, oh, what's Jaws about? It's about Shark. Mm-hmm. What's Rocky about? He's a boxer. Mm-hmm. What's The Sound of Music about? They sing and there's Nazis. Like, it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, you sort of have an idea. Right, right. Right? (laughs) So before we get into the nitty gritty of all things West Side Story, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. (laughs) 
Happy May Musical Month prom party. We have some, we'll say, interesting things going on over at the Patreon this month. For our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes, we are doing Dear Evan Hansen, because neither BJ or I have obviously seen that, because why would we subject ourselves to it? But I'm somehow thinking, maybe it's not that bad, even if it is bad. And to offset that, we are also covering Tick, Tick, Boom. This month's Patreon playlist is also going to consist of covers of musical theater numbers by popular artists. And for our Musical Milestones episode, BJ made me watch a lot of stuff about Glee, and I am exhausted, and I don't know why Ryan Murphy is like this. In addition to all of that, the Patreon also gives you access to our suggestion box, BJ's monthly wellness newsletter, and it is the penultimate episode for our Freaks and Geeks revisit. It's been a wild ride, and I'm going to be sad to see it go next month. But wait, there's more. Are you tired of scrolling through the same old movies and TV shows on your streaming service? Do you want to discover new voices and stories that break stereotypes? Then it's time to join Soleil Space, the world's first truly global community streaming platform. Soleil Space is more than just a streaming platform. It's a community of people from all over the world who are passionate about authentic storytelling and promoting underrepresented voices. With Soleil Space, you can discover the world's hottest emerging filmmakers, support filmmakers from your own culture, and curate films for your community. But that's not all. With Soleil Space, you can participate in watch parties and join groups to recommend films and meet new friends who share your love of film and culture. You'll explore authentic worlds of never-before-seen, critically acclaimed films from underrepresented countries and cultures. Join the Soleil Space community today and start exploring a world of diverse, authentic stories. Visit www.soleilspace.com to start your free two-month trial for This Ends at Prom podcast listeners using promo code TEEP60. Once again, that is S-O-L-E-I-L space.com and the promo code of T-E-A-P-60. Thank you so much, and back to May Musical Month. Alrighty, so... To get some of the technical stuff out of the way, because I think that's really easy, I would love to talk about just the aesthetic and the cinematography and the look of Spielberg's West Side Story because it is unfucking believable. I mean, Spielberg knows how to shoot a movie. Holy shit, Spielberg knows how to shoot a movie. He made a any note of all the criticisms you can lobby at like West Side Story in general. You cannot criticize Spielberg for making an impressive movie. Oh, it is so beautiful to look at. Um, Chris Evangelista over at Slash Film wrote a review, and Chris is also the host of 21st Century Spielberg and does like, like, he knows Spielberg better than I think any other critic working today. And so he's talking about West Side Story in his review, and he goes, Spielberg's been biding his time, waiting for the right moment, and that moment must be now because Spielberg's West Side Story is a knockout, a dynamite blend of old-school musical showmanship and modern sensibilities. It's one of the best movies of the year and one of the best movies of the acclaimed filmmaker's career. Yes, really. And later on, he talks about, like, you know, he's he's got all the sentimentality. Tony Kushner's got this great script. Mm-hmm. You know, that's his person he works with all the time. 
because, but gosh, what a joy it is to watch the way Spielberg stages one big show-stopping musical number after another in wide shots with bursting colors. You can feel the energy from these numbers. And often, Spielberg will leave in the shots of performers out of breath, slightly sweaty from all that action when it's all over, because this movie is alive. Yeah, and funnily enough, earlier in the week, Pluto's staff pick channel for the movie section was like, hey, here's West Side Story. So I sat down and watched like 30 minutes of West Side Story. But when you're watching it with commercials, it's like three and a half hours. And (laughs) I had shit to do. It was a very busy week. But I was getting bits and pieces of the movie outside of just like the set piece musical numbers that I have seen. And when you compare the original to this one, it is gorgeous what Spielberg does. Like the America sequence where they're outside and there's color, Mm -hmm. it's wonderful considering the original is just in darkness. Yeah, there are so many shots of West Side Story in the original one that are just so dark. Like, the background is dark, and it's, like, there's not a lot to look at. Like, the colors of their costumes are vibrant. Yeah, but, Um, like, the scenes all kind of look the same because mm -hmm. everything has has a murky, dark blur from scene to scene. Yeah, there's some nice stuff, like, you know, the when you're a jet is nice and vibrant and, you know, in the middle of the daytime, similarly to the way that it is here. But cool is in, like is in shadows and even like it's in like a parking garage. Yeah, like it's it's so it's so I, grim I think looking. there's more variety here and with like the advancements of technology you're able to showcase a lot more. Um the one shot the shot that everyone always likes to mention from this movie is when they get to the dance mm-hmm. and you follow that them in through the gym oh door and it goes over everyone's heads and then doubles back like that is wonderful. That looks so good. Uh I think that The scene for, like, Be Cool now, where they're fighting on, like, a dilapidated dock, is significantly more interesting. And they've got, like, more props to work with for their choreo. Mm -hmm. And, like, Ansel Elgort is being outdanced by literally everyone in that scene. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's have... Hold on. I I know exactly where you want to go with this. Yes, yes. But I was, like... Both times we watched this movie, when it came to streaming and now, I asked BJ, why is Ansel Elgort here? Like, he can't hit those high notes very well. And BJ went, because he can move. He's got enough of a following, and he's got a face and a name, and he can move. And I go, okay, but everyone is better than him at everything else. So he's getting sang and danced around circles around him. <laughs> yeah. Let, okay, so let's just have the Ansel Elgort conversation. We had a bit of that conversation during our episode on the faults in our stars. Um, we're just going to have it again. And similarly to how we've been talking about James Franco on our Freaks and Geeks Patreon episodes, we're acknowledging it and then we're going to just move forward so that we're not constantly talking about it because mm-hmm. that's exhausting um, for everyone to listen to and for us to have to experience because, you know, it's never a good situation. It's a thing. Yeah, but for those who don't know, Ansel Elgort uh, in 2020 was outed as having sexually assaulted a 17-year-old back in 2014. So this came out, like, right before the movie came out, which is why he's really not present in a lot of the trailers for West Side Story Mm -hmm. um, because at that point the movie was already done. They can't go in there and take him out. It's already been done. Um, But uh, he denies the allegations on social media. He described the relationship as entirely consensual they're still a minor. You can't have consensual relationships under the eyes of the law at this. Um, so yeah, he's, he's got some issues. Um, it makes watching this really weird and uncomfortable knowing what we know about him. And that sucks. Um, but he's also the weak tit on the mama cat of this movie. So I guess that's karma. (laughs) It's true, but also, I don't know. Like it makes it weird because like, you know, I'm aware of it, but at the same time, 
Tony sucks. Tony does suck. And Tony's always sucked. Just so, the character of Tony sucks. So all of the reading I've done about like the original versus this one, from what I understand, this movie is a much better film for basically being upfront about Tony being a dick and mm-hmm. just being really complacent in his gang and Riff's bad behavior by making excuses for them. Mm-hmm. So there's honesty about him being a dick. And I, I think that that's good. Like, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's good. Yeah, we should. Because otherwise what ends up happening is you have this romanticization of somebody who's a piece of shit and it's never checked. This movie's checking it constantly, which yeah. is a very good addition that Spielberg and has made. all it is is romanticization. Yeah. Like, that's all it is. Like, the big scene between Anita and Maria where she's fucking, like, schooling her after, like, the end of what would be the first act after the rumble. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you're fucking stupid. You are so fucking stupid. You are so dumb for being in love with this man. And she's like, I know I'm stupid. I know, but my heart. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and if that isn't, like, the most youthful form of, like, teenage girl infatuation with a bad boy you shouldn't be involved with, mm-hmm. like, that's it. That's distilled. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Tony fucking sucks. So yeah, so that's a big change that Spielberg made that I think is great. The other big change is the introduction of the character of Valentina. Uh, Valentina is taking over Rita. the is taking over the doc role as played by Rita Moreno. She's fantastic. I think this addition is so smart. This is one of those additions that I wish would then kind of overtake the stage production, similarly to how like there are some movie musicals that become so big and culturally important that it then impacts the stage productions. We see that with Grease. We see that with Annie. Um, this is another one. Um, I mean, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is another one too, where now suddenly the Alec Baldwin monologue mm-hmm. is performed in a lot of productions. I, I wish mean, it's a good, it's a good monologue. I think it's a good monologue too. <laughs> uh, but Valentina taking the place of Doc, I think, really adds a lot of depth to this. Um, I love Valentina being the one who sings somewhere the first time. I think that's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think Valentina being the one who interjects and saves Anita from being assaulted is a really smart call. So these are changes that Spielberg made that I'm like, yeah, that is a much better use of this, this script. Okay. So here's my question as someone who is much more familiar with the source material than I am. Are there changes you don't like? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, not really is the okay. thing. Like the ch- the changes that are made, I don't dislike anything that I dislike about West Side Story is just embedded in the story of West Side Story. It just, yeah, it just it just is. It's the implicit whiteness and the lack of POV that we're getting from the Puerto Rican community in this. I mean, even it's in some of the music where mm-hmm. like some of the music will start having like the sounds of Puerto Rico and then suddenly it just becomes you know, just vaguely gen- vague Latin Spanish music. music. Yeah. yeah, and it's like that's not specific. I wish you would have kept with the specificity here, but I that's the music that we've been given. <laughs> True. Um, so here, it's, so I actually have two things I think I want to talk about with that. One, I think the biggest fault of West Side Story is not what it is, but it's that it is an incomplete story. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like, I, I think there should be more time spent with both gangs because there's an equally compelling story happening behind the scenes of this story that we're not getting. And mm-hmm. therefore we have, as an audience, uh, unless you really sit and think about it, you're having a lot of favoritism towards the Jets that you shouldn't mm-hmm. because they're clearly worse. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Two, something that I think is very fascinating in reference to the music is the dance. 
Mm-hmm. So when they're all forced to dance with each other and they don't seem too happy about like these guys dancing with the, their broads and whatever, mm-hmm. the music they're dancing to is a mambo. Mm-hmm. America had a, a fun fascination with, with South America in the 40s and 50s where it was one of the only parts of the world that was not severely impacted by World War II that we could pull culture from. Mm-hmm. And so a whole lot of like Latin influence started to permeate into America as like a novel concept. You started to see dance crazes like the Mambo make their way to America. And white people were really into that. But they were also still really racist. Mm-hmm. So it's the uh, purveying whiteness of like, hey, we like it when there's culture we can borrow, things we can enjoy and and sort of steal, but we don't actually like you. Mm-hmm. I mean, and Puerto Rico became a U.S. territory in like 1917, I want to say, um, but there started to be a lot more immigration after the war. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what we're seeing here is like that boom of immigration that started happening. And you're totally right in that we really don't spend a lot of time with the sharks. Like, we spend a lot of time with Anita Mm -hmm. and a little bit with Bernardo, but we don't spend a lot of time with them. A lot of times we're seeing them through the lens of how the Jets are presenting them or, like, in direct conflict with them Mm -hmm. or in retaliation from them. Mm -hmm. And that leads to, again, a very uneven power imbalance. I mean... The sharks don't get uh, uh, an Officer Krupke song. They don't get one where they try to have the audience empathize with them and understand them because the one that they do have, which is America, uh, even that is all about like assimilation and Mm -hmm. like the hypocrisies that exist in our country. So if you're trying to get a quote unquote white audience to be on their side, they're not going to join in when their big song to get you to empathize with them is them shitting on your country which uh, I have no problem with shit on our country all fucking day. Yep. It's a garbage place. Yep. But what I'm saying is from like a storytelling point of view, again, uneven power imbalance. Like there's an implicit empathy that is given to the jets that is not given to the sharks. Buying on credit is so nice. One look at us and they charge to our highs. I have my own washing machine. What do you have, though, to keep clean? Skyscrapers bloom in America. Cadillacs zoom in America. Industry boom in America. Love in a room in America. Lots of new housing with more space. Lots of doors slamming in our face. I'll get the terrace apartment. Better get rid of your accent. Life can be bright in America If you can fight in America Life is alright in America If you're all white in America I'm going to reference some stuff from not white writers. That sounds great. Um, So Kate Sanchez from But Why Though, uh, just an amazing critic, did a Twitter thread uh, talking about how the Spanish in... West Side Story is not subtitled, and that was an intentional decision by Spielberg of, like, this is their language, and if you don't understand what they're saying, that's on you, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I, again, on paper, sounds great. Mm -hmm. Uh, But here's what Kate said. 
So not subtitling the Spanish and West Side Story is weird to me because even this version doesn't feel like something made for Latin first. When content made specifically for us doesn't translate in subtitling, it makes sense. But to be honest, West Side Story is still by and for white folks first. Like, the not subtitling isn't a barrier because a lot of the lines are delivered in English after they're said in Spanish, so I don't know why anyone would be mad at that. But also, I don't know who Spielberg made this for because, like, the source material, it's clear that we're not the main target audience. I just don't want people to come into the film expecting amazing representation when the bulk of the film is the same problematic foundation from the source material. There are good updates, but the bad accents and certain choices definitely show its blind spots. The Spanish in the film is kind of null when it's badly accented and kind of just shoved in there at parts. A lot is good with it and other parts make it sound like Google Translate inclusion. And it gets delivered in English most of the time too. Mm -hmm. So you've got that going on. Um, and then there was an article in The Cut that I really found exciting from Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez, a senior writer for The Cut. Uh, and the title of this is West Side Story Can't Be Saved. Oh. So already out the gate, so winging. So some of this article is Andrea talking about what this movie is like to, to witness as somebody who is Puerto Rican okay. um, and how it is painful and awful because its representation is not great, um, but also complicated because Rita Moreno is one of the most important Puerto Rican figures in cinema history. She's a treasure. Oh my God. She's so fucking talented. When are um, we watching 80 for Brady? <laughs> she's in a horror movie uh, coming out soon. I don't remember what the title of it is. All I know is that she's in it. So. Is it 80 for Brady? Because Tom Brady's pretty horrifying. Uh, it's very not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the article, Andrea writes, Bariqua's resistance to West Side Story and the love-hate relationship many have with it is well documented. The musical and film were the very first time many Puerto Ricans saw themselves on stage and on screen. Marino's earth-shattering interpretation of Anita earned her an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, the first, and for decades, only Latina to win such an accolade. And we have to point out that Ariana DeBose, who became the second Latina to win an, an Oscar, won it for this role. Just because Anita's a bad bitch. Anita is a bad bitch. Uh, but the cost of representation was steep of the stereotypes baked into the DNA of West Side Story, causing deep, long-lasting harm. When the musical premiered in 1957, the newspaper La Prensa called for boycott over its depiction of the community as violent, hypersexual, colonial migrants who came from an island full of quote-unquote diseases. Mm. And uh, the research that was done in making this included uh, Leonard Bernstein's research going to a gym in Brooklyn to observe gangs. Cool. In fact, the only reason the sharks were Barrico was because, in Bernstein's words, the Puerto Rican thing had just begun to explode. What he meant was that West Side Story was first supposed to be East Side Story, a love story between a Jewish girl and an Italian Catholic boy. And when that wasn't possible, the creator set the story between a white Polish boy and a Puerto Rican girl after seeing the front page about gang violence involving the latter's community. Hmm. It was the time of or Operation Bootstrap and La Gran Magresión of nationalists fighting for Puerto Rico's independence. The public discourse around Boricos who arrived in New York en masse were that they were poor, violent, reproducing at higher rates than, and therefore could dangerously replace the rest of the population. And in many ways, West Side Story cemented that narrative as the official one on stage. The sharks were not authentic or three-dimensional. In fact, their generality underscores how much the gang is a caricature of white Latina data was seen at the time. 
1961 film adaptation, full of brown face, inaccurate accents, and offensive remarks, exported these stereotypes beyond New York. For Americans and the rest of the world, West Side Story was, and 60 years later, remains the dominant image of what Puerto Ricans are. And if I may follow this up with a quote from Steven Spielberg himself as to why he thinks uh, this is an interesting story, he says, It's such a profound story. It speaks to every generation. It's just that love bridges every divide. It's timeless in a sense that we'd be reminded of that story as often as possible. And it's the most it's, idealist. It's approach. the most Steven Spielberg heartstring ass <laughs> so response sentimental. to this fucking thing I could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> right. And like the thing is, like, I don't think that Steven Spielberg is a bad guy. No. His heart his heart is so clearly in the right place. I mean, this article in the cut even says Spielberg and screenwriter Tony Kushner were aware of the deep flaws as they went into creating the 2021 remake. And at a technical level, it's easy to see why critics have lauded the film. It's gorgeous to look at, from its cinematography to its costumes. The updated choreography is electrifying, as is the decision to set the story with slum clearance as the backdrop. The characters feel more fully developed, and most of the actors shine in their roles. The portrayal of the Sharks received a major update thanks to a small army of Puerto Rican consultants, historians, and cast members who provided their expertise Mm -hmm. because all 30 of the Sharks are Latinx, with 20 being Bariqua, and a ton of work went into details to make the community feel more historically accurate and real. The Puerto Rican flag is prominently displayed as the film is set around the time of La Le Mordaza, which criminalized any symbols that were pro-independence. And in her new role as Doc's widow, Valentina, Moreno drinks Puerto Rican rum. After the attempted rape, Anita's fury is palpable as she hisses, Yo no soy americana, yo soy puertorriqueña, in a way that resonates with anyone who has experienced racism and discrimination stateside. Brico Spanish is prominently used, there are no English subtitles, yet to me, most of these details feel like cosmetic changes to write the previous version's sins, and in many ways, the bare minimum filmmakers could do. And that, to me, is a feeling that I feel like I get from this movie which is that it feels like a movie about West Side Story rather than a movie in of itself. Like, it's mm-hmm. very aware of the original. Yes. You know? I think you're totally right on the money with this, where there's, yes, this feels like a remake of West Side Story, and it feels like an update to West Side Story, but it very much feels like a movie that is trying to remedy the sins of the past rather than a complete, like, tear it apart, we got to work from the ground up and fix everything. It still feels like the original is the blueprint Mm -hmm. and not enough changes are being made to really fix the problems that just exist within the DNA of the text. Yeah, no, that feels very correct. It feels very much like Spielberg was trying to make a definitive replacement of of West Side Story so that people could still enjoy it. Like, that's that's what the quote that I read from him makes it sound like, where he wants people of all generations to be able to enjoy this story without dealing with the problems of the original. He's updating it. Mm-hmm. And I respect that, but mm-hmm. it just, it's not quite there. Yeah. <laughs> now is it? In, in this cut article, it says... 
For the most part, the film struggles to engage with the elephant in the room, which is that Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States, and most of what the sharks experience is directly linked to imperialism on mm -hmm. top of classic American racism and anti-immigrant sentiment. Mm -hmm. There are weak attempts to address this. At the beginning, the sharks sing La Borinquena, but not the highly sanitized post-U.S. invasion version that is currently the national anthem. Instead, they sing the revolutionary version. And as Andrea writes, that should have felt like a powerful movement, that song in a massive Hollywood production, but it felt like pandering. And equally awkward is hearing the Jets with a stronger tinge of white supremacy than before, by the way, recognize Puerto Rico as a U.S. territory. Are we supposed to believe that these poor teens in the late 50s who insist the Sharks go back to where they came from knew that of the political relationship when in 2017, half of Americans didn't even know that Puerto Ricans have U.S. citizenship? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think... That is a very good point, which is the opening, we'll say 10 minutes of this movie, sets up a lot of very important elements that we will never see again in this movie. Mm -hmm. So there's this bubbling undercurrent of like, oh, you're all being pushed out of your neighborhoods by, you know, trying to demo everything and rebuild on top of it. You know, you're getting $500 checks to relocate and get the fuck out. That's cool. Doesn't come back again. But it's like an under, it's, it's, it's a bubbling under plot point for mm -hmm. why there's active hostility because everyone is on shaky ground. Fine, but you don't actually do anything with it. Right. Like, there's a lot of these little elements, particularly with this, uh, this, this plainclothes cop that's there, mm -hmm. that, are, that, are, that are good to have, they're good to add, but then we don't really do much with them. Because it's just, that, by adding them in later, by peppering them in throughout the story... That would change the DNA of West Side Story. And if you change one small thing, then you change a lot of things. And it's like this butterfly effect that will just affect the whole film. Oh, definitely. This is this is a you pull the one thread of the sweater and the entire thing unravels because that's the problem with West Side Story and kind of what has always been the problem. And Andrea even like really breaks this down of looking at how this is a story that claims that it is positioning both sides as being equally bad and that's not the case. It's so not true. Because as we know, again, like when we're dealing with white supremacy, like there's always a power imbalance, but also even the way that the story showcases violence, the sharks are always put in the bad guy position. And here's here's how it is. It is Bernardo who opposes Maria and Tony's relationship and who first becomes a killer. It is Anita who lies after the Jets try to rape her, leading to Tony's death. It is Chino who pulls the trigger and kills Tony in revenge. And in this version, the white triumphs over brown coating remains, prioritizing fidelity to the story over nuance. Maria stays desperately in love with Tony and quickly forgives him after he confesses to killing her brother. Her grief pours through the screen when she's hugging his body in a way we never see her mourn Bernardo. Oh, for real, though. Like, that's that's the biggest sticking point for this entire movie as a movie. Like, as a structured film, he comes in through her window and is like, by the way, I killed Bernardo. And she's like, oh, no, let's fuck. <laughs> It's like, it's that's, so jarring. That's the biggest problem with this movie in terms of its structure, where it's like, you're missing a scene there. And I think that they sort of fix it in this version from what I understand, because that's where they sing somewhere. And that's where Rita Moreno sings it. And it's not those two having that moment. So like you get this little bit of a cutaway, but then you come back and it's like, oh, they're just in bed. Yeah. So it's like we, we hopped some, we, we, we hopped a few steps to get here. And you can't just excuse that with, teenage girl like horniness and lust mm -hmm. where you you can make a lot of concessions for that 
Um, you, you, you can chalk a lot of things up to the arrogance of youth, the influx of hormones, your first love. Those make you do crazy, stupid things. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that just feels like the definition of melodrama or plot for the sake of plot. Like, I feel like we just need a romantic scene because mm-hmm. that's what audiences want. But you could cut them having sex from the script and it would make way more sense mm-hmm. if Anita just came in and was like, how dare you let him in my house? Rather than you let him fuck in my house the night that he right. killed your brother. Right. Which is, it just elevates it to a point where it didn't need to go that high. You could have gotten those results and maybe it wouldn't have punched the same, but it would have made more sense. I, I agree completely. And even with the Valentina character, which I I do think is a better change than what we had with Doc is still not perfect, mm-hmm. um, as is written in the cut. Valentina hides Tony in her drugstore and is willing to give him money so he can escape with Maria. The final scenes see her walking Chino toward the police cars, presumably to be arrested for Tony's murder. Even unintentionally, that contrast is jarring. The white teen convict would have received a second chance from Valentina, but there's no effort to protect the Puerto Rican kid who until then didn't belong to the gang, studying and working multiple jobs instead in the same way. Mm-hmm. Historically, our complaints about West Side Story have been shot down by people who argue that stereotypes are inevitable in musicals and that we shouldn't be so upset over a work of fiction. And I'd be more receptive to this thinking had its creators and their contemporaries not heavily insisted the piece was rooted in real life and praised it as such. Mm. And that, I think, is a really, really big thing. Um, and, and the cut even goes on. Again, like this is an episode where it shouldn't be coming from us. Uh, the presumed realism is West Side Story's fatal flaw when it comes to Puerto Ricans. The good intentions of the revival can't save it. For all the filmmakers' insistence that they want to champion diversity and honor Bariquas, I've thought a lot about how much art the island and the diaspora could have made with the $100 million the musical cost this time around. There is so much talent and so little opportunities in front of or behind the camera, both stateside and at home. Um, Between 2007 and 2019, only 3.5% of movie leads were Latinx, 40% of Latinx actors played characters with connections to organized crime, and only 4.2% of Latinx directors worked on the 1,300 top-grossing movies. The price tag and the widespread adoration West Side Story is receiving works to reinscribe its symbolic importance, affirm white cultural authority, and prevent other narratives from coming into being. Yeah. A boy like that will give you sorrow. You'll meet another boy tomorrow. One of your own kind, stick to your own guy. A boy who kills cannot laugh. A boy who kills has no heart. And he's the boy who gets your love and gets your heart. Very smart, Maria, very smart. A boy like that wants one thing only. And when he's done, he'll leave you lonely. He murdered your love, he murdered mine. Just wait and see, just wait, Maria. Just wait and see. So, fun story. It is currently Wednesday morning, the day before this is going up. Mm-hmm. This, this episode has been sent off in about uh, 10 hours or so. And the back third of the episode got corrupted. So now. We're recording the stuff that got screwed up, and we're doing it now, and we're going to get it together real quick and send it on its way, and we're not at all dog-sitting for Michael Kennedy, (laughs) and I had to drive across Los Angeles last night (laughs) to get our equipment and come all the way back. 
Never doubt our commitment to this pod. Oh, yeah. And because Scooby is here, we will probably have to edit around uh, a lot of barking. Yep. Because <laughs> she likes to make herself heard when we are recording every time we have to record while we sit at her. Can can I say that I guess that's going to be like our stick it episode where our zinger at the bottom is just <laughs> Scooby barking. Oh, God. She she really needed to go out that time. But anyway, so we are we are back to talking about West Side Story. And we're going to knock this out and talk about all of the things that you would have missed. Yes. Um, and the reason that we weren't just going to be like, hey, screw it, is because it's kind of important stuff. Also, like, it's a third of the episode. <laughs> like, <laughs> we can't just be like, oh, you got like 55 minutes. Good enough. <laughs> so the first conversation that we wanted to talk about is another update that Spielberg made that we both find pretty wonderful, which uh-huh. is... The character of anybody's. Um, and this is an update that might not be super recognizable if you're not familiar with the source material. There were, of course, some people decrying that Spielberg went woke with this movie by including this character, which just shows that they don't actually understand the history or the origins of West Side Story. The concept of Steven Spielberg. The, going man who, woke. the man who made Schindler's List, amongst many, many other things, going woke. <laughs> Fucking right. It's just ridiculous. Um, so there is a character in West Side Story that is a member of the Jets that is named Anybody's. And Anybody's is famously played by a cis woman, historically. Um, the character was meant to be a tomboy. There's been rumors over the years that the character only exists because... Jerome Robbins had a friend who really wanted to be in West Side Story, and there's not a character for a young white girl. Um, no, this is a this is a sausage fest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the character was sort of put in to be this, you know, tomboy who really wants to be in the Jets, but they don't want to give her any attention because oh, you're just abroad kind of thing. Um, in the original script, it is very much like, oh, this is a tomboy, and they are constantly discounting her because of her gender. Mm-hmm. Like, Tony sends her home before the the fight of like, oh, you don't want to see this, kind of like trying to protect her. And it's only when the gender is affirmed um, as like, hey, you did good, buddy boy, which is when anybody's uh, narcs on what's what the sharks are up to, mm-hmm. to be like, hey, Chino's going to like kill Tony. So Like, and Chino <laughs> was such a nice, awkward, nerdy boy. And he, he was pushed. Uh, Chino, too, <laughs> especially in this movie... Gives me that like, oh, I get why people didn't understand that Superman is also Clark Kent kind of thing. Because once he takes those like big glasses off and like unbuttons one of the buttons on that sweater vest, you're like, oh, damn, Chino can one, get it. And two, uh, he's got some intensity in there. Look yeah. at him. He's not just this awkward boy who's awkwardly dancing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I think that character is fascinating. So when Tony Kushner was reworking the script, and he did also collaborate a bit with Sondheim, and um, every interview that I read about this just continues to promote the fact that Sondheim has sort of spent his entire career being like, I don't know what y'all see in West Side Story. There's not real characters. It relies on melodrama. It's fine. (laughs) You mean that thing I literally accused it of doing, like, I don't know, 10 minutes ago in this episode? (laughs) Yes. Melodrama. It's like, yes, it is. This is definitive melodrama, including melody. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So Sondheim did talk with Kushner about this character and agreed to this change. It was like, wait, this is actually really smart. So now in Spielberg's West Side Story, anybody is no longer just like the tomboy character. 
anybody's is gender nonconforming. Anybody's is a transmasculine character. Uh-huh. Um, the character of anybody's, while not super well known to the general public, is a bit of a queer icon because the character falls under the same umbrella as like Terry and just one of the guys where it was really affirming for a lot of transmasculine people. It was a really affirming character for a lot of butch lesbians. Uh Um, And it was also a really affirming character just for anybody who felt a little different. Yeah. So it's a really nice change that they don't classify anybody's as a girl in this movie. They clearly don't see anybody's as like the same as all of them. Like they're not trying to erase blatant like gender roles and homophobia that existed during the time period, but Mm -hmm. they're also not being like, this is a girl. Well, this is also during a time where like the language for knowing what you're feeling is, is a bit uh, unfound. Like Mm -hmm. it exists out there. Like obviously Christine Jorgensen made, national news uh during her time but that's also like a trans woman versus uh whatever anybody's got going on in terms of like the gender queer trans mask spectrum of things mm-hmm. and this is also assuming that any of the jets keep up with news and mm-hmm. read right so, <laughs> so there's a good chance that it's just like there's just no language for for what's going on here and it's just like i have a feeling and i'm acting on it but I, that's it Yeah, and I I did find an interview with Slate that really dove deep into this character and Tony Kushner's approach to the character. And what they said is that Kushner was like, I would like to treat anybody's as a trans character, not as a tomboy. And Spielberg said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. But doing that, of course, is easier said than done. You now have to navigate between tokenism and presentism. And that's really difficult to do. Anybody's would need to feel not only authentically trans, but authentically a character from 1957. So Kushner did a lot of research to figure it out, reading books about sexuality in the 1950s and street gangs, and crafting an elaborate backstory for anybody's that goes way more in depth than what we see on the screen. To Kushner, the Jets were these people whose parents were probably drug addicts or criminals or just abandoned them, and anybody's would have had a life like that. Except he was born with a strong sense of his biologically assigned gender being wrong, and this is somebody who couldn't live pretending. It was one of the reasons that anybody's wound up basically orphaned on the street, trying to find various places where a trans kid could fit in, in homeless shelters and wanting to attach himself to the Jets, partially out of a sense of survival, and also out of a sense of wanting to be accepted as the gender he views himself to be. And on top of all of that, Trying to have that deep of a character in a movie where no one has characters. <laughs> right. Like, it, it is really honorable that they did this and they finally just said, no, anybody's is canonically trans, which I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're totally right. It's like, okay, now we have this character with this really involved and really important backstory in this movie where everybody is a little one-dimensional, to oh, put can, it kindly. You can sum up everyone's character in one sentence and then sum up their motivations and arc in a second sentence. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I really like this update and change. This is another one of those things that I hope sticks in future productions where this character is just treated as canonically trans. Uh-huh. Um, I think the story is stronger for it, personally. Yeah, especially because after... Um, after Anita goes and visits Valentina's, mm-hmm. the Jets become, you know, the pre- the they they reach peak villainy because mm-hmm. they're clearly the fucking bad guys. Mm-hmm. And 
Then they all just get kicked out and vanish from the final scenes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Except for anybody who is just out on the streets somewhere. Mm-hmm. There's also some updates to that scene that are extremely important. And that's one, the girlfriends or like the hangers on of the Jets don't want them to do this and are recognizing this is fucked up and bad, even though they are just as racist and shitty as the Jets, they see this as like an unquestionable problem and they do not tolerate it. Yeah, like Spielberg talks about, in the quote that I get from this episode and some of these interviews about how this is like crossing barriers and love conquers all. And that's not... So true. Like, I guess it's true. But, like, I think a better example of, like, things crossing all barriers is that when Anita shows up, these girls are like, fuck you. Don't come here. How dare you speak Spanish here on today of all days. And as soon as the Jets start to get violent, as soon as the Jets start to... um, make their intentions known. Like, like they're just waiting for a drop of blood to be spilled, and then they will all just, like, attack Anita like sharks. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't even want to villain, villainize sharks. They're, you know what? No. Sharks have humanity. Jets are cold and mechanical. <laughs> <laughs> but they're just, they're waiting. And as soon as An that happens... important distinction. Harmony is referring to the literal animal, the sharks, not the other gang, the sharks. Yes, both. Well, it... I said I realized what I was saying when I was thinking a drop of blood, and I was like, no, it works in double entendre. <laughs> but these girls, like, as soon as that happens, they shift on a dime and go, nope, you need to get out. Don't fucking hurt her. And they're about protecting women from mm-hmm. shitty dudes, even if they're being racist at the same time. Yeah, it's it's a really powerful scene to see them shoved outside the doors and them not leave. Mm-hmm. Them staying there of like we're going to be here and we're going to fix this when it's over. That is an extremely powerful visual. Mm -hmm. And again, another change that I think is great. And because of the Valentina change, that means that Valentina is now the one who is rescuing Anita from the situation and not Doc. And that works on multiple levels. One, because again, it's that women helping women sort of situation. Mm -hmm. Two, this is Valentina legitimately sticking up for the Puerto Rican community when she's been giving Tony all these passes um, for like the whole fucking movie. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, Rita Moreno played this character, which means Rita Moreno has been in that position. And she has done countless interviews over the years where she talks about how That is her least favorite scene in the movie, not just because of the context, but because she felt she could never fully go there as an actor because she has been assaulted. She was taken advantage of by somebody in the industry when she was just starting out. And so that scene was really difficult for her to perform. So now that she's the one who is saving Anita, she has viewed it as this full circle moment where she's sort of getting the opportunity to save herself and that makes me cry. Oh, yeah. I can, I'm can. i seeing you across this table, and I'm like, you're getting real real glassy right now. I'm getting glassy. My voice up. is choking up a little bit because that is something I think a lot of us who have been through that wishes we could do, mm-hmm. where we could go back in time and save ourselves from that experience. And the fact that she metaphorically kind of gets to do that is really beautiful and heartbreaking and... I think there's a reason that that's one of the strongest moments in this movie. I mean, it's what everything builds to. mm -hmm. Honestly, Tony getting shot at the end is the falling action as far as I'm concerned. I agree completely. (laughs) Like, 
We talked about how Spielberg is making this movie fully understanding knowledge of the previous movie. Mm -hmm. This is one of the benefits of that. Yeah. Is that you can have like what what is essentially metacasting Mm -hmm. with Rita and doing this scene and how that is just a stupendous thing, both in front of and behind the camera. Yeah, definitely. And it is... It's really a hard scene to watch because of how intense uh, Ariana DeBose is in her commitment to that scene. Um, but it does also give the update where she says, like, you know, I am not an American. I'm a Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. I know I quoted that earlier when we were reading the article from The Cut. And uh, I have my my slight accent that happens. Um, I think it's just residual from also taking four years of Spanish and I got screamed at. Uh, if we did not use uh, an, like an accented language, we were seen as bastardizing it. Mm-hmm. So I, I live in this weird like Spanglish uh, sort of vortex whenever I'm reading Spanish. Um, it's the thing of last week when we did Read for Madness and marijuana has to be spelled with an H. Right. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know, like... <laughs> Just white people do do weird things with Spanish, but like it feels yeah. both right and wrong to have an accent. Yeah. So I guess that's just me acknowledging that if anyone was like, wow, where did that accent pop out? That's why the dialect sort of pops out when I say certain things and apologies if that is not the best practice. I am a dumb white person trying my best. Aren't we both? That's <laughs> the moral of this episode. Right. Okay. <laughs> But, but I wouldn't say Steven Spielberg's dumb. No. I would say he's old. <laughs> Spe- Spielberg is a very smart, very old man. And I think that he has a lot of sweetness in his heart. Bless him. Mm-hmm. But Ariana DeBose, let's just talk about her in this scene. And the fact that, well, one, one Anita's the coolest. And she has the best arc of anybody in here because she actually has a proper arc. But she is absolutely, like, stomping mm-hmm. everyone. She is a giant amongst men in this movie. What I think is so fascinating about West Side Story as, especially in this movie, but just as a general sort of story, I don't really give a shit about Tony and Maria. They are so boring to me, and I know it's because it's just the... They're avatars for Romeo and Juliet, so I've seen their story a hundred million times. I don't care. Oh, yeah. Anita and Riff are the two characters that I think are so fascinating. And the fact that we have Ariana DeBose absolutely crushing it. She wins the Oscar for a reason. Um, And then Mike Feist as Riff, he's phenomenal. And it is secretly really hilarious to me that Mike Feist clearly had the choice between being in West Side Story for Steven Spielberg and playing Riff or... Being in Dear Evan Hansen and playing Connor, a role he originated on Broadway, and he went, nah, West Side Story. I mean, it's a it's a way more compelling character, and For he's real. so good. Like, to compare this to, to something else in terms of, like, the, the, the grand ethos of musicals, this is kind of like when we watch Crybaby, mm-hmm. and every single side character in Crybaby is the most interesting person imaginable. Mm -hmm. And John Waters clearly was like, the leads are going to be so fucking boring. (laughs) They're going to be the most beige, uninteresting characters in a rainbow of far more colorful cast of characters. Yeah. (laughs) And that's almost the case with West Side Story, except it's not that many interesting characters. Mm -hmm. Most of them are one note. But God, the side characters that we have. Like, Riff is such a charismatic awful villain. He's... I think he has a specific cult of personality to him that makes him very easy to follow. Mm -hmm. Especially in Tony's absence because like, 
Apparently Tony went to prison, but I don't believe that really at all. <laughs> Nothing about Ansel Elgort's performance tells me this guy did time. I'm like, no, you didn't. No, not at all. Like maybe I came like, back reformed. Shut up. <laughs> I'll keep my I'll keep my head down because I'm not trying to cause trouble. I'm on probation. It's like, yeah, I get that, I guess, but like Again, dude, there's An- no Ansel Elgort edge. is so fucking dull in this movie, <laughs> and I wish he wasn't here. But Mike Weiss is so good. Like I, I've been reading, I've been reading a lot about uh, cults and cult-like behavior, and it has also made me recoil from the internet in fear. Because even if you're not in a cult, then it's really, really easy to fall susceptible to stuff like that. Sometimes it just all it takes is confidence. You to be a little unsure and a little lost in what you're doing or what you want to feel about something and somebody comes along with assurance and bravado and you go, they're right. Mm -hmm. They're absolutely right. And so I get why all of the Jets follow him, Mm -hmm. even though they are all clearly in the wrong. Well, Riff is also this larger than life personality in the sense that when he stands next to Tony, like he's much smaller than Tony, Mm -hmm. but he is absolutely the one that I think is in charge Oh yeah, because he commands a room and brings a presence where anything that he may lack physically compared to some of the other guys, like he's still so much scarier. He is so much more intense than everybody else. And he just, he brings that energy that is kind of addictive. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you're right. I get why people would fall in line if he's the one that's in charge because he just has that quality about him. Well, it's like watching any Scorsese movie where Joe Pesci is the heavy, like Casino, where it's like, this man is the scariest man in Las Vegas. Right, even though he's Five like Five foot, foot four Joe <laughs> Pesci is the scariest man you've ever met in your life. Yeah, Riff has that energy, and he's also really scrappy. Uh-huh. Um, even though, like, oh, this... Oh, fights dirty. Yeah, that's his whole That's his whole shtick. You ever fired a gun before? Sure, of course I have. What kind? Colt? Revolver? Yes, so. What did it shoot? Bullets. 32s. Cold shoots 22s. You got money. I don't sell heaters to unscrubbed boys. These guys, the ones we're rumbling with, they're bringing heat. Because they think we're bringing heat. So we need to bring heat so they know that we ain't defenseless. And vice versa. Mutually assured destruction. I don't know what that is. And what is also so brilliant about West Side Story and why it becomes a complicated movie to love is that Spielberg doesn't shy away from the fact, though, that they are still children and that they're easily susceptible to groupthink and that it doesn't take much for them to make really bad decisions because they're frontal cortex hasn't fully developed yet. So they're a little impulsive. Like when they get guns, they're running around the streets going pow, 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 pow. Like they're children. It it is so like the most of their children scene Mm -hmm. is when they're like throwing a gun that they specifically pointed out. Like you don't even have to pull back the hammer. You just click and boom. Yeah. Like they point out that this is a particular like hair trigger gun and they're just tossing it to each other. Yeah, and there were some critics that were like, well, that just seems like musical theater nonsense. And it's like, no, that is teenage nonsense. That is, I'm invincible because I am 21 years old, you know, 17, 21 years old, however old, 
And I don't think I can die yet. I mean, I would you could call it teenage nonsense. I would honestly go so far to call it childish nonsense. Because mm-hmm. this feels more in line with like the goofy childish nature of like the cast of newsies. That's a really good point. Yeah, this yeah. is this is these are not full teens. They certainly aren't adults. Mm-hmm. Like these are, you know, these 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 stunted children who have been left on their own and are still children because mm-hmm. they've not had any reason to mature. And what's fascinating is I think this goes for both the sharks and the jets is that what we are seeing as well is we are seeing a lot of kids who have been hardened because of their circumstances of living in poverty and, you know, having to kind of fend for themselves. Mm -hmm. So there is something that makes them feel like they are much more mature and much more adult than they actually are because of those experiences. It's like any, any eldest daughter who has ever become like parentified, like we think that we're all adults and we think that we're a lot older and more mature than we are, but we're still fucking children, even if we have more responsibilities than the quote unquote average. I also think just in terms of this being a period piece, like how many how many jokes go around that it's like this man was 30 years old mm-hmm. and he's like gray and has like a face like granite <laughs> because we like smoked and spent a lot of time out in smog clouds in the sun as children, <laughs> right. like back in like the 20th century. And also that it, because it's a period piece, they all dress like 40 year old men. Right. All of them look like they just did like a hard shift at the mill. Yes. <laughs> like at best, their nice clothes would be like what we associate with like bowling teams now. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's fascinating how they do that and, you know, speaking of just youth and all of that. I want to talk about Rachel Zegler because we really haven't talked about Tony Maria because they're kind of nothing characters, but Rachel So we don't want to talk about him. So he sucks. He sucks. Uh, but Rachel Zegler is truly fantastic in this movie and it seems like the internet really wants to Rachel bury her. Um, in the sense that they think she has like theater kid energy and therefore they don't like her for that. But she's been so captivating in everything she's been in since this. And lest we forget, Rachel Zegler was found after Steven Spielberg put out like an open call. He was like, I'm looking for a Maria. If you can sing, submit a video to me. And she was one of like 30,000 people to submit. So she was kind of like, this isn't necessarily like a rags to riches sort of story, but this is one of those classic Hollywood stories of you're found plucked somebody out of obscurity, turned them into a superstar. Well, yeah. I mean, she, she she's was just, an unknown who was like 16 at the time yeah. and ended up in a Steven Spielberg movie as a lead. Yeah. She also became the first uh, Cuban person to ever get nominated for a Golden Globe or win. I can't remember if she won or not, but I know that that is a distinction she now holds, which Mm -hmm. is really cool. Um, And then she's since gone on to be in Shazam. She's going to be in the Hunger Games prequel. She's going to be Snow White. Which makes total sense because she absolutely sings like a Disney princess, particularly like an old school Disney princess. The yeah. She has one of those kind of sweet qualities to her voice, probably mm-hmm. also because she's young. Yeah, I mean, like, she can definitely belt her face off, but she has such a beautiful control of her upper register where she does sound like a Disney princess. Well, just, she's very operatic sounding. Mm-hmm. It, it, and that's not really a quality that you get in newer singers. Like, if someone has high notes, you go Ariana Grande, and it's like, oh, no, that's because you're being Mariah. Mm-hmm. Not because you're singing, like theater mm-hmm. or like you're operatic. Yeah. It's it's a different it's a different quality of singing. It's a different style of hitting notes. Definitely. And she is 
really, really trying hard in this movie. The accent isn't perfect, which the accents are not perfect kind of across the board in this movie, but we already referenced that in some of the articles that we mentioned earlier. But she is trying so hard. Every single scene she's in with Ansel Elgort, I feel so bad for her because she's kind of interacting with a brick wall because he's not giving her anything and she is taking everything she can and running with it. I mean... I, I want to I want to just try and unwrap Tony a little bit like let's like, I, like why are you like this why are you so fucking stoic and I think it's because he doesn't know how to express but first of all he's a dude so he doesn't know how to express feelings but like he doesn't know how to express positive feelings because mm-hmm. he's you know he, he was a particularly rambunctious little bit of riffraff before mm-hmm. and I think that now he doesn't really know how to direct feelings in in a way that isn't somehow destructive or isn't like being with one of the boys Mm -hmm. so maybe he's just a little bit of a a, you know a lost at sea kind Mm -hmm. of in in a in a big sea of emotions yeah (laughs) i don't know that's the best i can figure out for why he was directed to be as vacant as he kind of is and who knows if he was even directed to be this way or if that's just what he gave. Yeah, but you, you, it's Steven Spielberg. If he didn't like that performance, he would go, do it again and do it better. That's true, but... This man is all about feeling. This is very true, but something else that we talked about, though, is that for all intents and purposes, Ansel Elgort and Rita Moreno are the only names in this movie. Mm-hmm. Ariana DeBose is huge now, but she wasn't then. Rachel Zegler, like we said, plucked from obscurity. Mike Feist, yeah, he was a Tony-nominated performer, but we know damn well that the general public doesn't know shit about shit when it comes to the Tonys or Broadway, so they didn't know who that guy was. I mean, was. I didn't. I said, who's this guy? He's putting in a fantastic performance as a fucking joker. <laughs> right. So... Ansel Elgort kind of being the name, I think Spielberg might have been saddled with him a little bit. Maybe. Uh, Which is a shame because I definitely think there are people who could have done Tony much better. Probably. But Ansel Elgort was kind of the hotness when they started shooting this. And then, of course, it was discovered, oh, Baby Driver's a fucking sex pest. Okay. I mean, he's also the least interesting thing about Baby Driver. (laughs) That's that's also true. Um, He can move, though. Those choreographed running sequences, I get why they cast him. He can move, but he doesn't move as well as everyone else. No. God, no. Uh, he's a mover, not a dancer. Eh. Um, but the, the fatal flaw of the Maria character, though, in general, is that we don't see her enough with the sharks for my liking. We oh, yeah. see her almost exclusively with Tony and viewed through the eyes of Tony. And I think it would have been beneficial if we saw more of Maria with her family, with mm-hmm. her community, with her culture. I, and we just don't. I would agree with that. But I also think that if you want to look at how the Jets do things, they don't want dames in their ranks. And that's why anybody's isn't allowed to be there. So I don't know how much she would be interacting with with the sharks. I think at best you would have maybe a, a date scene with Chino. Mm-hmm. And then she would go, Chino, I don't like you. I like this guy that I met behind the bleachers and was immediately smitten. Which, by the way, um, I really love how that scene is lit. And, like, I know I've been critical saying, like, the whole fucking original movie's in darkness. <laughs> I like that scene because it is also in darkness, but you get these peppering of lights between the slats and the bleachers that they're behind. It's really beautiful. And it emulates the original scene. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is just smart and it's wonderful staging. The staging in this is ridiculous. Steven Spielberg... 
can make a goddamn movie. Yeah. I know. Hot take. Can't believe that's being said in 2023. This dude who's been in the business making fucking killer movies for 50 years? Fuck. Who'd have thought? <laughs> yeah, it's unreal. Some of the stuff he pulls off. The shadow play, beautiful. The lighting, beautiful. The costume and choreography and blocking and staging, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. No notes. Like, yeah. all of that is perfect. That's the one thing we can all agree on is like, yeah, Spielberg made a fucking really impressive movie. He, he made one of the best, like, from a technical level, movie musical adaptations ever like it's so good if this came out like 20 years ago everyone would be saying like this is one of the most beautifully shot things i've ever seen in my life (laughs) yeah agreed completely which like spielberg doing a musical he's never done one before no he's had like musical sequences and he's had like choreographed moments but nothing like this and it's like oh yeah no stevie can do whatever he wants yeah (laughs) he can do literally anything he can do this he can do war horse why not Whenever anybody says Warhorse, all I can think of is... The pro wrestler? <laughs> no. Well, oh. that too. The one who rules ass? The one who rules ass. Uh, I think of that Bob's Burgers joke where she goes, what's your favorite book? Squeal Magnolias or whatever? And the kid just goes, Warhorse. <laughs> or favorite movie. Yeah. Because he refers to the movie. It's so silly. Yeah. Uh, but while we're thinking about the sharks, uh, something that we talked about before our beautiful sound got destroyed before we lost everything before we lost everything is that we would love to see a West side story companion musical. That is the same story, but through the perspective of the sharks. Oh yeah. Because this movie is incomplete. Mm-hmm. Like that's, I think I came out the gate swinging when we recorded this the first time around is mm-hmm. that this feels like a really compelling story, but there's a significantly more compelling story happening in the background mm-hmm. that would make this better. Mm-hmm. And so Man, I don't want Rise of the Pink Ladies. I've not watched it. I don't know if it's good, but like I would rather have something like this personally. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a much more interesting musical period piece mm-hmm. for my tastes mm-hmm. to consume is like, fuck it, Paramount Plus makes West Side Story presents the sharks. I would love that. For what it's worth and for the record, Rise of the Pink Ladies is surprisingly really cute. Okay. I can't believe I'm putting that on record, but it is. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have no investment in this. I'm just saying. <laughs> but no, as, you're... As a product that I would be interested in watching who ha- has not watched it, mm-hmm. this would get my attention better. Agreed completely because this is the story, I think, that people have genuinely been waiting for. I don't and... know who was waiting for an origin story for the Pink Ladies. I know a lot of people who are waiting for... A, a story that is from the perspective of the sharks and giving them the chance to tell their story. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that there's probably some like cool underground indie theater production where somebody did do this as like, I don't know, like a one act musical or something. But to, if somebody were to like give that money and really produce it, I think we're, we're, we're in a culture where IP mining has become the standard. If we're going to do that, then let's make interesting choices. Dude, they were going to make a movie about Alfred the Butler. Batman's Butler, Alfred? They were going to try and do that. And then they didn't, which, you know, I fine, whatever. I wasn't going to probably watch it anyway. But, like, we're doing that as far as our IP mining is concerned. I think that we can go ahead and give the sharks a movie. Yeah. Or at least if we're not going to actually do it under the West Side Story banner, just... Tell me this story mm-hmm. as an independent thing. Right. Just like, just be like, yeah, I mean, we sort of wrote it as this, but then we just changed everything around so it's not technically a West Side Story thing. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But like, okay, so final question before we move on to wrapping up this episode. BJ, I know this movie came out in the pandemic and it did better than I thought it did. Mm-hmm. 
but provided this didn't come out in the pandemic, do you think it would have done well? In my heart of hearts, I want to say yes, it would do well. But I know that that's not true. The general public, for whatever reason, has really fallen off with musicals in the last five years. Like La La Land did really well, really well financially. And then we got like In the Heights, which really didn't. But that's also a pandemic release. Mm -hmm. West Side Story really didn't. There have been a lot of musicals that have gone direct to streaming. And part of me thinks that maybe movie musicals have fallen under the same umbrella as like Pixar movies, which is that they started getting released to streaming. So now people expect movies like this to just go to streaming and they're not going to go out and see them in the theaters. But then part of me also thinks that if more people had seen it in the theater, the word of mouth would have really done something for it because that's when I think people started seeing it in theaters was about two weeks into its theatrical run when people were like, I know everybody was asking, why do we need this? Why are we remaking this? It's really good. And then people started seeing it and then suddenly it was out of the theaters. So I think I I want to be optimistic, but I don't think so. I mean, you want to be optimistic. I think I'm just going into this quite a bit more pessimistic than you Mm -hmm. because one, I think musicals, like sincere musicals, like a like a tr- a true to form musical that isn't La La Land, not like a jukebox musical, not one that's not like Mamma Mia two that yeah. made a lot of money and did fine. That's that's camp. That's silly. That's fun. I think people want a silly musical. People want a fun musical because people don't want to suspend their belief that you can tell like very serious, gripping stories mm-hmm. with a musical. That's like I've not seen La La Land, but it seems like a little bit more of a of a silly good time than West Side Story. Mm-hmm. So, so so there's that. I also think that Spielberg generally isn't the name value that he used to be. His movies do okay, like, for what they are. But Spielberg's not pulling in blockbuster names outside of people who love cinema, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think for a movie musical to be successful, it needs to cross out of people spreading word of mouth amongst, like, movie fan culture. Mm -hmm. But more than anything else, I think that the issue with West Side Story is that it just feels old. It feels, it feels dated. It feels like a type of movie that we don't make anymore and haven't made for a long time. I think the setting feels old. I think the storytelling feels old. And I don't think that's a bad thing. But in order for it to make large amounts of money, I don't think that it's going to speak to the general population well. Mm-hmm. Because, like, there's nothing wrong with a movie being old. Like... Fucking, what, what is it, Dunkirk? Dunkirk made money. Mm-hmm. And that's a fucking World War II movie. I mean, All Quiet on the Western Front won the Oscar for Best International Feature this year, and that is a remake of a film from, like, the 20s or 30s. I yeah. don't remember which decade exactly. Um, but, like, critics and people mm-hmm. who love films love stuff like this. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to translate to big box office success. There's also a bit of tainted goods with West Side Story at this point in our culture because... The things people think about it, even though the music is undeniably so catchy and some of the best music in the musical theater canon, is when somebody says, like, West Side Story, the thought is brown face. Like, I mean, it was one of the things I thought of. It's one of the first things people think of, so I think it's the combination of, like, that sh- certainly isn't helping. 
And the fact that uh, we are now actually having difficult discussions about representation and about what these movies are and something existing is no longer good enough. It has mm -hmm. to also be authentic and it needs to be real. And for as much as West Side Story originally was pitched as like based on a real story kind mm -hmm. of thing, we know that that's not true. So then it kind of feels like mockery or, you know, it feels at the very least incomplete. Yeah. Um, and maybe at its most insidious, antiquated. Definitely. I think antiquated is the right word, I yeah. think. Um, and if you can suspend that disbelief and kind of buy in and recognize this is antiquated and this is also not based in reality, you can have a good time. It's a Romeo and Juliet story. It's a Romeo and Juliet story. It's going to be melodramatic. It's going to be teenagers being dumb as shits. It's going to have unnecessary tragedy that could have been avoided if people just actually talked about their problems and fought the real enemy, which in this movie is... American imperialism and capitalism and not each other mm -hmm. um, and, you know, fighting racism, like fight the real enemy in this instead of each other. These are children, not community organizers. Exactly. <laughs> like they're children. So I think because of that, that's also going to hurt, you know, the, the box office success of a movie like this. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a shame, but I get it. And I also think that it's not a judgment on anybody who had no interest in this because especially if you're somebody who has been harmed by this movie uh, over the last 60 years. Uh, yeah, you don't have to like this movie either. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, Spielberg really tried to make something special, and I think that that is evident that there was an attempt. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that works works, the stuff that doesn't doesn't, but the stuff that doesn't work uh, was there long before Spielberg ever got here. Yeah. And I think uh, that leads us to the question... West Side Story is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? Or are you sending them on their own with their own ticket? I'm going to give this a yes. Because I think that everything wrong with it is just a symptom of having one's hands tied mm -hmm. by the actual like source material. And like, there's no rules that say you couldn't change the source material. But it's just, it's handling too big of topics for what kind of movie it is. And, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you could say that like, it shouldn't be bothered with then, mm -hmm. you know, just we've moved on from a story like this, handling topics like this. But as far as like a piece goes, like there's a lot of really good things in it. I think that it's a beautifully made film. It is, at least for me, a person who has not seen other versions of West Side Story live or the original movie, this is the definitive way to watch it. Mm-hmm. I agree completely, and that's no shade to any of the people who put together the first movie. You won all your Oscars for a reason. We've moved on. You're a product of your time. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing I will say, though, Rita Moreno is so fucking good. She's mm -hmm. so good. <laughs> <laughs> she always has been. She always has been. She always will be. And I'm glad that if there is one bit of connective tissue between both films, outside of just, you know, it's the same story, that it's her, because she's the best. Mm -hmm. I think that takes us out on West Side Story and puts a, a close to May Musical Month. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at The Sunset Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use Title as our theme song. They're going to be going on tour this year. Uh, we've been sharing it on uh, 
uh, on the social medias if you want to go see the Sonder Bombs and be like, come to Los Angeles. And be like, hey, we love you and we love your music, so you can go see them. Uh, but Harmony, what cool band or artist do you want people to check out this week inspired by West Side Story? So because of the nature of what this movie is, um, I really wanted to shout out a cool Puerto Rican artist. And I did not have anybody off the top of my head. But fortunately, South by Southwest was just like, here's a bunch of independent people from Puerto Rico making some sick music. And I went through and I listened to a bunch of it. And a number of them are very good. But the specific person that I'm shouting out for the sake of this episode is Unanima. And, you know, as we said earlier with pronunciation, uh, I also took four years of Spanish and tried really hard to do a good job there. I think I did okay. But as a performer, she makes sort of indie songwriter dance pop, but it uses like traditional rhythms. And I don't fully know what any of the songs are about because I don't speak Spanish, but I feel like I know what they're about. Mm -hmm. Like, do you, do you ever just like listen to a song and you just, you understand the feeling well, it's like whenever we watch martial arts movies that don't have subtitles because they never got them and we're like, no, I can follow exactly what's happening. I know what you're saying. I know what you're feeling. It's similar. Like yes. when you listen to her music, you might not know what the exact language and poetry is, but you can feel what she's feeling. I'm feeling the intensity yeah. even if I'm not getting the nuance of the words themselves. Exactly. So she's been releasing music uh, as singles for the last couple of years now. And from what I understand should have a new EP out this summer. So that'll be something to look forward to. Amazing. Well, friends, thank you again for listening. This has been such a delightful May Musical Month. It's my favorite time of the year, and I appreciate everybody for humoring us <laughs> for covering these titles. You say humoring. People seem really jazzed when we do some of these. That's true. Some people get really hyped, but then some people are like, I don't like musicals. And I I'm sorry. got several messages from people going, here's why I like From Justin to Kelly. I, it's bad, but I think it's fun, and I y'all are wild for that one. <laughs> that's cool. Like you know what? It's that's fine. I'm just I'm happy people reached out to me and decided to tell me why when I was like, no, but please enlighten me. That's very true. <laughs> Alrighty, we will see you next time, and as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.